This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, everyone. There's a little spicy language ahead. Get your earmuffs ready. Just repeating the facts of exactly what happened to Ryanair Flight 4978 this weekend, it feels like you're tapping out the first few lines of a pulpy spy novel. The plane was supposed to travel nonstop from Greece to Lithuania. It was going to do that by cutting through Belarus's airspace. But when it did that, the pilots got a message from air traffic control. A code read. They were told there was a bomb on board. Belarusian authorities sent a fighter jet to escort the plane to Minsk, even though they were closer to Lithuania at that point. After they landed, instead of pulling explosives off the aircraft, authorities pulled off people, specifically a Belarusian dissident that President Alexander Lukashenko had been trying to capture for years. His 23-year-old girlfriend got detained too. In other words, this was a state-sponsored skyjacking. I mean, it's insane. This was just, I mean, something out of a movie. Julia Yaffe was watching all this play out from New York. She covers the region for GQ magazine. Yeah. When I saw it on Sunday, I was like, oh, that can't. I saw it on Twitter first. I was like, mm, I don't know. This is, this is like, I'm going to wait on this news story to see, you know, see, what, see if it's actually true. I mean, huh. it's, in, it's insane. Julia's family is actually from Belarus. She was born in Moscow. It gives her a unique perspective on what's happening here. She says the first thing you need to know about this incident is that you can't separate it out from what's happening just over the border in Vladimir Putin's Russia. There is a crazy crackdown underway, both in Russia and in Belarus. My friends in Russia are in just are in such despair. I have never seen them despairing like this. People are, um, you know, more and more people are leaving who haven't left already. Um, people don't see a way to live in that country anymore and to, you know, be free. Part of what upsets Julia about these crackdowns is that Putin and Lukashenko, they seem really comfortable playing a long game. This Belarusian dissident who got pulled off the plane, he'd been living outside the country since 2019. He still had a target on his back. Russian authorities don't mind taking their time either. You know, I mean, you saw in Moscow after the last pro-Navalny protest, it happened during Putin's kind of state of the nation, state of the union address, as it were. And the police didn't crack down on the protests. Um, they didn't want those pictures flying around the globe and outshining Putin's address. So they didn't crack down and they let the protesters protest. And what they did was they started showing up to everybody's houses in the following weeks, including journalists who simply covered the event, you know, in press jackets, with press passes, um, opening up cases against them, uh, you know, which means like, yeah, they just used facial recognition software and they know where you live and they showed up 
they, they, you know, you might have gotten away on the, at the protests and you weren't, you know, arrested and dragged across the pavement into a paddy wagon, but you, you'll never know. Will they show up next week, the week after that? And I think Lukashenko knows that if Putin's doing it, that he can do it too. Today on the show, the Belarus skyjacking is another example of authoritarian leaders getting brazen. Is there anything anyone can actually do about it? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we get to this skyjacking, let's do a quick refresher on Belarus. Alexander Lukashenko is president there, technically. He's been in charge for almost 30 years. His last election, back in August, it was heavily disputed. The U.S. has called it a fraud. The EU has agreed. Citizens took to the streets back then to protest Lukashenko's power grab. But those peaceful demonstrations ended in violence. You know, in in August, when the revolution broke out in Belarus, um, they, Lukashenko went crazy on the protesters. I mean, prisoners, tens of thousands of people were, yeah, tens of thousands of people were arrested. I think the count is now something like 35,000. I think some have been, many have been released, but many reported being tortured with rape threats, uh, I mean, in addition to physically being tortured, they were tortured psychologically with rape threats, with mock executions. It was just incredibly brutal. I read this really kind of devastating story about a TV journalist who went on the air denouncing the violent police response to the protests in Belarus. And he got arrested quite promptly. A few days later, he reappears in a video calling on opponents of the president to stop what they're doing. And afterwards, he told a reporter, these people just know how to formulate their requests in such a way that you cannot say no. And it just seemed very, very dark what was happening and also very public and transparent. Like everyone knew what was going on. And that's part of what made it so dark to me. Yeah, that's what an authoritarian regime does. I think one of the things that journalists in this space are facing isn't just that, you know, they could be arrested or killed. It's that they could lose their livelihoods and they have families and, you know, homes that they need to take care of and pay for. So sometimes you have to toe the line just to kind of feed your family. Because of the way journalists are treated in Belarus, a sort of shadow media industry cropped up on an encrypted messaging app called Telegram. Channels sent out mass texts to spread information. And last summer, one channel called Nechta and its sister channel, Nechta Live, it was sending out protest information to almost 2 million subscribers. So describe to me a little bit who 
the people are behind Nechta? So it was started by Roman Protasevich, who was a young guy. He started off as a student, he and an, and an activist. And he started this channel as, you know, an alternate information source. And then when the revolution happened, when the protesters hit the streets, he said, you know, get out there and helped coordinate where all the protests were happening, um, how to evade the police, etc. So back in August, Nechda was was putting out their messages like, take to the streets, defend your votes. So this was not subtle stuff. This was explicit. We've seen in Ukraine and in Russia that oftentimes it's journalists who are the ones who sound the call to uh, defend their freedom. I think for a a Western audience, it might be a little wild, but I think journalists see themselves in in this part of the world as fighters and defenders of freedom. Last year, authorities in Belarus put Roman Protasevich on a list of individuals involved with terrorist activities. But he and many of his Nechta colleagues, they were able to avoid detention by doing their work from outside the country itself. That changed this weekend when Protasevich caught that flight that dipped into Belarus's airspace. Roman was coming from a uh, economic conference in Greece where he had been with Svetlana Tikhanovska, who's the you know protest leader. And he had been with her, with her advisors, and he was texting them and others from the airport in Athens saying, there's a bald guy here. He's taking a picture. He's taking pictures of me. He's following me around. He's trying to take pictures of my documents. And he thought it was, you know, it was kind of suspicious, but I think he, you know, was like, ah, it's fine. Got on the plane and, you know, then then we know what happened. Well, and the reports are when he learned that the plane was being diverted, he got very upset, like not screaming, but everyone was aware of how upset he was. Yes, he 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 started handing off his phone and his laptop to his girlfriend, which proved ineffective because she, of course, was also arrested. He started telling fellow passengers that if the plane lands in Belarus, he's going to be arrested and that he faces the death penalty in Belarus. He, you know, fellow passengers said, I mean, this image really stuck with me from the reporting. Fellow passengers said that he wasn't screaming, but you could see that if the window were open, he would have jumped out of it. This short video of Protasevich was released. But how much do we know about where he is and, and what will happen to him now? Well, we don't know a lot. I think the video was released because there were reports going around right after his arrest that he was in the hospital with heart problems and in critical condition and his his mother had even been told of it about this, and she said, "Yes, you know, he has had heart problems in the past. That's why he was exempted from the military draft." So this was sort of a proof of life video. Yes, right. Uh, so people people freaked out, understandably, that you know, critical condition sounds very serious, and and um, people thought maybe you know he had been tortured to that point, or people immediately noted the markings on his face. Um, other people noted how he was holding his hands and how his sleeves were positioned, which seemed to be, uh, hiding handcuffs. And, you know, the fact that he not only said, hi, I'm alive, I'm in good health, 
they're treating me well, but that he also said, I'm confessing that he's confessing to the crimes he's accused of, which is, you know, plotting mass unrest. And some of the things he's accused of is, you know, carry prison sentences of 12, 12 and 15 years. Um, it was, was really shocking. And I think people immediately started wondering what they had done to him um, and what they had said to him to make him confess so quickly. Yeah. It made me think back to that other journalist who said, you know, they have ways of getting you to say what they want. Right. And I think the fact that um, we're not really sure where Roman is, but his girlfriend is uh, in a pretty notorious prison, um, one where a lot of protesters were tortured this summer and fall. Um, The fact that the security services are still called the KGB, I think for a lot of people in this part of the world, it summons a lot of very dark memories of, you know, the darkest days of the Soviet Union and tortured hundreds of thousands of innocent people into giving confessions, um, admitting to the wildest things, you know, spying for the Japanese and the British and the Germans at the same time, while running counter-revolutionary rings to assassinate Stalin and his closest associates, you know. Impossible things. Right. Impossible things, especially for, you know, people's, you know, university students or school teachers or factory workers being accused of this and tortured in the most horrible kind of darkly creative ways that just make the mind real when you read about them. And I think, I wonder to what extent in places like Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, to what extent that kind of historical fear is a factor and how much of the work it does for the security forces when they come in and have a quote-unquote conversation with you. When we come back, the international response to Belarus's skyjacking. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When thinking about the way Belarus was able to divert a commercial flight to achieve its own ends, it's helpful to remember that President Alexander Lukashenko 
has a partner in authoritarianism in Vladimir Putin. They're not always linked, but when it comes to stunts like this one, Putin is going to have Lukashenko's back and vice versa. Is it worth seeing these two dictators together, like as a unit? I think in this case, yes, because what happened is, if you look at August 2020, the revolution started up in Belarus, and the next week, Navalny was poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent, and his plane had to make an emergency landing, which saved his life. But I think those two things were connected. After Belarus grounded Flight 4978, the international community responded pretty swiftly. The EU decided on increased sanctions. Airlines started avoiding Belarus's airspace. That's another financial hit. Julia says the speed of these decisions, it was notable, but not surprising. Putin may have Lukashenko's back, but at the end of the day, Belarus is an easy target. You know, when it's Russia, it's a lot harder for people to get to unify around Russia sanctions to get everybody on the same page on how hard they're going to go against a place like Russia. Russia's a much bigger economic player, a big energy supplier to Europe, uh, much more interwoven into the economic fabric of Europe or used to be than, than Belarus. And, and here it's like, all right, fuck Belarus. <laughs> this is also, I think what they did was so crazy, right? Like, it was so, I mean, what was done was so over the top and so kind of flamboyant and zero fucks given by Lukashenko. Again, diverting a plane going between two EU countries, a plane owned by an EU country, uh, full of EU citizens, messing around with something like a bomb threat, misusing the protocols in place for passenger safety. Again, in there, I think there was a, a feeling of a violation of European sovereignty. I mean, I'm glad you talked about Belarus's size and the swift reaction and how those things might be interwoven. Because some have speculated that in cases like this one, it's just kind of part of a new norm of authoritarian leaders flouting international boundaries and codes of conduct in pursuit of their opponents. And it sounds like you're agreeing with that. But it seems to me like there's this additional complicating factor a lot of the time where if you're talking about a Russia or a China or a Saudi Arabia, countries similarly known for crushing dissidents in extreme ways, they have these strong ties to the U.S., to Europe, ties through oil and manufacturing. And so responding to them is both more necessary and more complicated. And it's just a very different story with Belarus, which is a much smaller place. Yes. And you even had uh, Emmanuel Macron say overnight, uh, he said, you know, we have to rethink how we you know, because immediately Russia gets dragged into the picture and people are asking, you know, did Russia know about this? Did they help with this? Um, do we lean on Russia to punish Belarus? And Macron said, you know, we have to rethink our sanctions policy because I think it's reached its limit. And I think he has a point because a country like Russia, for example, you can sanction it all you want and it's going to be basically fine. Um, 
in part because how the government is structured and, and the Russia's govern, governing philosophy, which is that the people exist for the good of the state and not vice versa. And also it has these tremendous resources, not just oil and gas, but diamonds and gold and all kinds of uh, chemicals that the world needs um, and will continue to buy. And if the U.S. and Europe won't buy them, China sure as hell will. So it's just they, they're just not as effective against a country like Russia, especially not against uh, China, which is an economic powerhouse that rivals the U.S. now. With a country like Belarus, it's more like, I think it's more like a Cuba situation, right? Um, you isolate it, the people suffer. Uh, it has, it will have a, a few kind of foreign sponsors, big brothers that help underwrite things as it's suffering through this economic um, siege. But, you know, where have, sing- I mean, this is kind of a, a question about the efficacy of sanctions anyway have they been that effective in iran have they been that effective in cuba i don't think they have been i wonder if in the weeks ahead you're looking for a response that looks at what's happening in belarus as something that is made possible by these other larger states that we have a different kind of relationship with and how the international community begins to think about begins to think about how to involve themselves with those states now that as you've said sanctions aren't really working what's the next option i i think also there has to be some kind of understanding uh and i think that there there is one increasingly in in the us both on the democratic and republican sides that there's just a limit to what you can do uh, to affect change inside another country, especially when it's somebody like Lukashenko who is fighting for his survival. You know, when the, he sees this 26-year-old journalist activist, Roman Protasevich, as an existential threat. That's why he made the plane turn around and land in Minsk so that he could arrest, again, a 26-year-old. He sees this as an existential threat. He was nearly driven from power in August. And in in that part of the world, when you're driven from power, you don't, things don't end well for you. And so, you know, what can an outside power do to convince somebody like Lukashenko, who has limited economic possibilities to begin with, that it's worth releasing this guy or worth easing up on activists and independent media if it means, you know, a threat to his power and his life and his family's life. Well, back in August, it's so interesting because you were writing about the protests and sort of lamenting the fact that America wasn't really able to get involved because we were really chasing our own tail, is how you put it. You know, we had our own presidential election going on and, you know, we were busy with the pandemic. It sounds like a little bit what you're saying is, we're not chasing our own tail anymore, but in some ways, it's hard to know how we would involve ourselves now, now that we have the bandwidth to do so. Yeah, I think we have to do something. The question is what and what we're, what are the goals? Is it just to inflict pain and punishment or or is it to change the outcome and get him to release 
from Protosevich. And I think increasingly it's it's just going to be, you know, to inflict pain and pain, you know, just a action reaction as opposed to, you know, making Belarus democratic. I think we've come a long way from, you know, from the Bush years of spreading democracy and make it and trying to force other countries to become democratic, which as we saw does not does not really work if they don't want to do it. You know, when whenever a dissident is arrested, there's always the chance that they basically become a martyr and their movement grows rather than shrinks. Do you think there's a chance that this arrest backfires on Lukashenko? Well, I think it's already backfiring uh, in the international arena. I'm not as sure what's hap- what the long-term effects are going to be in Belarus. I don't know. I'm quite pessimistic about, about these countries. And I think that at this point, I don't see Lukashenko being kind of forced from the throne by the moral force of a martyr. You know, I hope Roman doesn't become a martyr. I hope he survives and is released from jail, though I, I think he won't be. Um, I, I just don't, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm very pessimistic. I think what Putin showed Lukashenko and the world through Assad, through Bashar al-Assad in Syria, is that you don't have to back down when there are protests. Um, you don't have to step down. You don't have to accede to their demands. You can just pound them into the pavement. And nobody will care. Nobody will do anything. The international community won't come and save these people. Um, even when hundreds of thousands of people are slaughtered and millions are forced from their homes and overwhelmed. Um, neighboring countries with the refugee crisis, you can still win. I think like Russia is making a big deal, for example, out of the presidential elections happening in Syria today and how Bashar al-Assad is basically the consensus favorite because people are just so tired of the war. And I think that's what people like Putin and Lukashenko have learned is that you don't have to give an inch to these people and you can kill them. And also, you know, what we saw with MBS and Khashoggi you can kill your opponents in the most horrific, brutal, medieval ways. And people will fuss in the West and they'll condemn you and issue statements. They might even punish you economically. But at the end of the day, they're not going to come and force you from your throne. You know, the days of Iraq and uh, George W. Bush are over. And I think the lesson is repression works. Julia, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Julia Yaffe covers national security and foreign policy for GQ magazine. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Dalshad, Davis Land, Mary Wilson, Danielle Hewitt, and Elena Schwartz. Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery make sure we stay on track every day. I'm Mary Harris. Tomorrow, Lizzie O'Leary is going to be here with What Next TBD. That's our Friday show. She's going to be telling the story of why Apple is in court with the makers of the video game Fortnite, talking about whether a banana man needs to be wearing pants. All right. Have a great Memorial Day. I will catch you back here on Tuesday. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.